Let's turn in our copies of God's Word together to Colossians chapter 2. As we'll look together this evening at verse 15. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Great God, how encouraging it is to know, as we have heard from our dear sister, bear witness, that the evil one has been bound and that the word of the living and life-giving Savior, Jesus Christ, can now go forth to the nations. We bless you that that word has come to us and may it come to hearts now effectually who do not yet know Jesus Christ, and may it come to hearts who do know him for their upbuilding in him and growth in his grace. Accompany now the preaching of your word with life-giving power and bring dead sinners out of death into resurrection life. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Colossians 2, let's begin at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we've been doing, we continue to peer into this treasure chest of Christ's fullness of saving grace throughout this section. As we've seen, a major feature, perhaps the main feature of this fullness of grace is there in verses 12 and 13, resurrection with Jesus Christ already in this age. Resurrection from the dead in and with Christ That is what characterizes the Christian throughout this life as we await bodily resurrection at Christ's return. And we have been emphasizing this because it is essential to the Christian life. That is seen in part because almost the rest of the book of Colossians, in one way or another, shows us the significance of resurrection with Jesus Christ. As we will, Lord willing, eventually see in chapters 3 and 4, resurrection with Christ is what determines our ongoing battle with sin, our family life, our jobs, our prayer, our speech, to name a few things. But here in verse 15, Paul gives us one particular way resurrection with Christ is significant for us. This is the, the summary of verse 15. We see here how resurrection with Christ spells the defeat of our enemies and our victory over them. We see here how the Christian is in the middle of a kingdom-to-kingdom conflict, but by the grace of God as we see here, that conflict has been decisively won at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All that we'll see this evening is an elaboration of Shorter Catechism 26, How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. 
So we'll see this in four ways this evening. First of all, let's look at God's enemies. God's enemies. Even a quick glance, even if you've not read it before, just reading verse 15 shows that God in Christ has achieved a great victory. You see the language there of disarming, putting to open shame, triumphing over. This is clearly the language of a decisive, devastating, irreversible victory in Jesus Christ. The question is, whom did God get this victory over? That's also clearly there in verse 15, the rulers and authorities. Maybe that's still not clear who we're talking about. Let me read you a few passages where the same language is used to show this. The rulers and authorities are the demonic powers with Satan at their head. The demonic powers with Satan at their head. We're talking here about God's victory in Christ over the evil spiritual forces. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, this language of the rulers and authorities can be referenced to human authorities, but there are quite a few places where the New Testament shows that there is another class of rulers and authorities, not human. These are the angels who have fallen willfully and irrecoverably into sin and damnation who exercise their demonic influence in this present evil age. So listen to a few passages that unpack more of who these rulers and authorities are. Think of Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there are perhaps... Most clearly, that is a reference to the rulers and authorities being the demonic powers. Or earlier in Ephesians 3, how Paul was given grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So there Paul emphasizing that the fullness of grace in Christ has to do not only with humans, but with these evil spiritual forces as well. It has to do with them in their defeat. And even earlier in Ephesians 1, where Christ's relationship to these evil forces is spelled out. The working of God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So now we're beginning to see that Whatever influence Satan and his legions have in this age, they still remain under the nail-scarred feet of the risen Christ. Think also about Romans 8. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Similarly, whatever influence Satan and all his legions have in this age, they can never separate you, believer, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Or think also about 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Likewise, whatever influence Satan and his legions have in in this age, their full demise is certain when Christ brings his kingdom to consummation, removes death from his new creation, and casts the evil one into the lake of fire forever. So this this is all to show us that the rulers and authorities here in verse 15 in our passage are Satan and his demonic servants. We've seen reference to them already in Colossians, back in chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So already there, Christ has authority over these angels in part because he is their creator. Now let's not misunderstand. Christ did not create evil spirits. He created angelic spirits spirits who rebelled against him and became evil. You look at passages like Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Jude 6, what, what do you begin to see putting these things together? That in the beginning, God created the invisible heavens. That was a majestic throne room of God, which he populated with innumerable angels to worship him, they who were privileged to be his attendants to his royal court. And yet, one angel was filled with wicked pride Instead of delighting to be a humble servant and worshiper of the king, one angel wanted to be worshipped as king himself. He became guilty of treason against the one true God and was cast out of the heavenly sanctuary, cast down from heaven to earth, taking other rebellious angels with him. And it was sometime between the beginning, sometime in the beginning, after the creation of heaven and the temptation of, the, of, of Adam and Eve, that is when this fallen angel tempted the first covenant head, Adam, to follow him and imitate his prideful rebellion and self-assertion over against the blessed creator, the one true and living God. So even though these spiritual forces have become evil by their rebellion— Christ is still supreme over them. We also saw reference to these demonic forces in, earlier in Colossians 2, verse 10. You have been filled in him, in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. Mentioned there of them explicitly as well. If you remember what we've seen throughout our series about Christ's headship, Christ manifests his headship as risen from the dead, he manifests this headship differently for his people and for his enemies. 
So Christ is head, but in different ways. Christ is head over his church as her savior. He is head over all spiritual, evil spiritual forces as judge. Christ's headship over his church is redeeming. His headship over evil spiritual forces is defeating. Christ reveals his face to his church, and he subjects his enemies under his feet. So that brings us to to our passage now. These rulers and authorities are the evil spiritual forces. Now there's much to say about spiritual warfare and demonic activity. Yes, Satan continues to prowl, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. But Paul is not talking here about how we engage with ongoing spiritual warfare. Yes, we look forward to that glorious day when Christ at his return will cast Satan into his eternal destiny of condemnation and so bring us into the new heavens and new earth. But Paul's not talking here about future demonic doom. Specifically, what we see here is that God has delivered to Satan and all his host a mortal wound from which they cannot recover in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that victory over the evil one is ours in Jesus Christ because God raised us from the dead when he raised Christ from the dead. So what has God done specifically in the death and resurrection of Jesus to these enemies? That leads us secondly to see how God disgraced his enemies. God disgraced his enemies. This is in the middle of verse 15, which is the main phrase translated there, he put them to open shame. This is the main phrase and everything around it in verse 15 it, um, it revolves around it. You could also translate this phrase, he publicly disgraced them in boldness. What we see here in verse 15, what God has, what God has delivered to his enemies in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no politeness in this defeat. There is no gentlemanly agreement to be a good sport in competition. The picture here is of mockery, disgrace, humiliation, and public shaming. So great, so vast, and so complete is the victory over evil that God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for his church. This word here of putting them to open shame that Paul uses, this is the same word that Matthew uses to show Joseph's desire for Mary not to be seen as an adulteress. Think of Matthew 1.19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So think about what we see combining these things. What Joseph was unwilling to do to Mary, this is what God did openly to the evil one. Christ's death and resurrection is God's public shaming of the devil and all who serve with him. And we get previews of this throughout the history of redemption. Think of 1 Kings 18. After that, the prophets of Baal cry out to him in this conflict, this manifestation of the kingdom-to-kingdom conflict between Yahweh, the true God, and Baal, the false God. 
The prophets of Baal cry out to him for hours, from morning till noon, and no surprise, they get no answer. So Elijah, the servant of the true God, mocks them for their foolish idolatry. 1 Kings 18 says, And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. You hear that mockery of all that is demonic. Maybe he's in the restroom. Cry out louder. This is a preview of the open shame that God has subjected the evil one to. And when the Lord, the one true and living God there, in 1 Kings 18, when he manifested himself in the fire that not only consumed the offering, but it licked up the water, the soaking wet offering in the otherworldly fire of his presence, Elijah commanded, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Do you see how this is a preview? We get something of, a, of an instance of what God has done in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, openly conquering and in a mocking way conquering the evil one who had sway over us. Think also of 1 Samuel 17, that familiar story of David and Goliath. After Goliath mocks Israel and Israel's God, what does David do? The seemingly weak shepherd boy defeats the tall, strong, mighty, and trained warrior. With no armor or sword, David buries a stone in the enemy's head. And as, as is recounted there in the narrative, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'ariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent." Do you see there a preview as David, the Lord's servant, crushes the head of Goliath, the, the servant of the evil one? Do you see there a, the beginning of a fulfillment of Jesus Christ who would crush the serpent's head, but in the process his heel would be bruised? There is in this kingdom-to-kingdom -kingdom conflict not a gentlemanly defeat, but an open disgrace as God defeats his enemies decisively. God has done what Elijah did or what Elijah was used to do and what David was used to do. God has done on the grandest scale, defeating Satan himself in Christ's death and resurrection. What else does this look like? This leads us thirdly to see how God has disarmed his enemies. God disarmed his enemies. Along with the public disgrace there is also God's disarming of the rulers and authorities. You see there in verse 15. And that word translated disarmed can also be translated stripped. That's the same word used we've seen already and will see in Colossians. Same word is used back in chapter 2, verse 11. 
In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off, same word translated disarmed in verse 15, just, uh, putting off the body of, of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Or skip down to chapter 3 and verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So disarm could also be translated put off or stripped. The thought there is similar to the previous one, that our enemies have been openly conquered. We have in view here in verse 15 of the Roman triumph parade. Greg Beale brings out this, this background, saying that the picture here is of a conqueror who has vanquished the enemies, shamed them by stripping them of their weapons and armor, and leads them in a victory parade which concludes in their death. So you might be asking, how so? How do our, our demonic enemies have no more power over us? Well, think back to, to chapter 1 and verse 13. There, Paul says, He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain or the authority, same word used in Colossians 2.15, from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what's connected there? Being under the authority of the evil one, being in the domain of the evil one, in which our sins are counted against us, in which we are held responsible for our sins. But as we saw last time in chapter 2, verse 14, that record of debt that stood against us, that miles-long record of debt as we have broken God's law that speaks for itself in God's court of law, thank God, has been canceled. It has been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. He took it as one who was personally responsible for it in our place. And when he came out of the tomb, our sins did not come out with him. We saw last time. So here there is a connection between the demonic domain of darkness and our sins, our record of debt. Just as there is a connection between Christ's kingdom and the forgiveness of our sins. This is brought out graphically and beautifully in Revelation chapter 12. There John says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death." Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Did you hear 
that description of the devil in Revelation 12, he is the accuser of the brethren day and night. Satan is our unrelenting accuser in God's court of law. And so putting all this together, I think we can say that between our record of debt and God's court of law that speaks for itself against us, consigning us to eternal conscious torment from a holy God for breaking his law, he who is forever blessed. Not only did that record of debt that stood against us speak for itself, but we could say the greatest attorney in history, the accuser, the evil one, spoke against us, pointing to it, arguing against us in God's court of law, consigned these sinners to hell for their sin. And you know what's scary about all that? He's right. We are hell-deserving sinners. There's nothing we can do, no case we can bring to counteract his case. But thankfully, this war that broke out in Revelation 12, this decisive victory that we see here in Colossians 2, means that Satan's accusing power has been broken. There is no more case for this lawyer to make. The debt record is not in Satan's hands. It's nailed to the cross. It is no longer against us. It is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Our Savior has come out of the tomb and left our debt record on the bloodstained cross. Satan has no place in God's heavenly presence, his court of law anymore, because he has nothing to accuse us of. Jesus paid it all. Satan is the one who has the power of death, Hebrews chapter 2. And Jesus took away the sting and curse of death by dying. How do you defeat someone who has the power of something by doing the thing they have the power of? But that our Savior did. Jesus took away the sting and curse of death by dying and by being raised from the dead, removing the power of the evil one who has the power of death. So as a result, we have nothing to fear in this life, in death, or in the life to come. Jesus paid it all and took care of it all. As one commentator puts it, by the cross, Jesus turns aside the sword thrust of Satan's accusations, and by the resurrection, he strips Satan of the weapon of death, freeing those who all their lifetime were held in bondage by their fear of death, which Jesus himself spoke of in John 12. Not later, but now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you hear how the evil one, as powerful as he still is, as bitter as the the conflict against him still will be, He is a defeated enemy. He has received that mortal wound from which he will not recover. Fourthly and finally, God triumphed over his enemies. God triumphed over his enemies. This is the end of verse 15. That word for triumph there, Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, giving us a fuller picture. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession 
and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This language of triumph shows that the defeat of the evil one is the victory of the Christian in Christ. Not of taking over any nation, not of establishing a a political order in this life, but of victory over the kingdom of darkness, whatever this world has for us, whatever any nation has for the church. The picture here, again, is of the Roman triumph parade. The conquered enemy is bound, led in open, open triumph as the victor enjoys his conquest, mocking the defeated enemy. There's, and as we've already hinted at, there is a sweet irony here. Christ's victory came through his death on the cross. Jesus defeated Satan, who has the power of death, by dying as a curse on the cross. As another commentator put it, the cross on which Christ died is the chariot in which the victor rode in triumph. So far from being his his defeat, Christ's death upon the cross was his victory chariot, defeating the evil one. As Herman Boving put it, Christ overcame all the hostile powers who resisted and opposed him, and as it were, captured them as prisoners of war. That, that is how decisive, how full his victory over the evil one and all who serve him is. Again, this is, this is the fulfillment of that first promise of gospel grace in Genesis 3.15. Have you ever noticed how the very first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 has to do with Satan, has to do with the defeat of our, of our enemy, when God says there to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Our Savior has come, and he has crushed the serpent underfoot, and in so doing has received a, has undergone a bloody death and ordeal. But that bloody ordeal was not his defeat. It was the defeat of the evil one as the, as the serpent's head has been crushed. Jesus spoke about this also in Mark chapter 3. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is that one stronger than the strong man. Jesus has gone into the strong man's house and bound him, and he has emptied and plundered his house. That is what the background is in in chapter 1, 13 and 14, about how God has transferred his elect people from Satan's kingdom to his son's kingdom, as Christ has bound the evil one and emptied his kingdom, releasing us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of life in Jesus Christ. Do you appreciate here this open, shameful defeat that God has effected in Jesus Christ against the evil one? As the evil one has, has constantly messed with the bride of Christ, he has now received the wrath of the husband. And it's all connected to what we've seen throughout this section. Resurrection with Christ means the cancellation of our debt record, verse 14, which leads to here in verse 15, 
Resurrection with Christ means the defeat of Satan's accusing us using that debt record. Herman Boving summarizes wonderfully how Christ's kingship, conquering his and our enemies, has, is beautifully spelled out in the New Testament. By his cross, Christ triumphed over the world of fallen spirits. He came to earth to destroy the works of the devil, battled against him all his life, especially toward the end when it was the hour and power of darkness. He was the stronger contender, and the devil has no power over him. He already saw him fall like lightning from heaven and took his armor from him. Especially by the cross, he triumphed over authorities and powers, took from Satan the weapons of sin, death, and the world, and cast him out of the territory of his kingship. He triumphed over the evil spirits, specifically on the occasion of his ascension, ascending on high, leading captives in his train. And so to bring this to conclusion, to bring this more, make this more personal, think of the, the words of the hymn. And this is many of us, I think, this evening. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Is anyone tempted to despair? Is anyone feeling something of the accusations of the evil one? That he's right and that God will listen to his accusations and divine wrath will fall upon you. See afresh the risen Christ made alive the third day after his death and how you have been made alive with Jesus Christ in his resurrection. Because of this, the accuser has no more case against you. His, his, his only power, your sin debt, has been nailed to the cross. His case has been totally wiped away. And there is nothing for him to accuse you of any longer. For God the just is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon all who are in Christ. Amen. And may God add his blessing to the preaching of his word.